Hi everybody, this is Denny with a few words before we get started today. It appears that when you live by technology, you also die by technology. A lot of you know that uh, I'm in Oregon, Drew is in Pasadena, and uh, we use the internet to communicate when we do these shows. Well, my internet is out and has been for a while, and we don't know when it's coming back. So we thought what we'd do is pull out one of our favorite shows from the archives for you guys this week. This is the one where we talk to our Igors about their thoughts on cryohops, something that Drew and I have been playing around with a lot lately. We hope you enjoy it, so sit back, relax, enjoy this one, and we'll be back with a new show next time. Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best brewers and bring you their tips, tricks, and secrets. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. Well, on today's episode, episode 101 of the podcast, We'll get into that in a little bit more. Uh, we're going to go take your feedback, go into the, uh, well, our favorite segment, the occasional correctional department of corrections department. Uh, then before we head into the pub to talk the beer news, uh, in the brew, we've got a couple of things, including a new product that we just tried, some brewing updates, and, well, what it means to hang out with us. In the lab, we're going to get into our cryo results finally, because I think we may have a handle on it. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, and then in the lounge, we talked to Joshua M. Bernstein, a beer writer extraordinaire, about his forthcoming book, or actually his recently published book, Homebrew World, where he actually takes a global focus on some of the same ideas that we tackle in Homebrew All-Stars. We get you a quick tip, we answer some questions, and something other than beer before we get you on your way and into your week. Well, you know what? I always say I'm tired when you say all that, and I guess nothing's changed. I'm tired of being tired, but hey, <laughs> let's take care of some business. All right, let's do that. We're going to uh, take a quick break here and let you listen to a message from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and get this show on the road. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
glad you're still with us. It's time to get going here. The first thing we want to do is tell you that there's a new episode of The Brew Files that has come out, episode number 35 of The Brew Files, but it makes a total of 100 episodes for us between uh, this show, Experimental Brewing, and The Brew Files. So we thought we'd kind of like reflect on what we've learned, and hopefully you guys have learned some stuff too. Yeah, so this is now actually officially episode 101. But hey, you know, one of the things that I think that we came out of that episode where we reflected on it, uh, on what we'd learned and what we really think about brewing, including our four core secrets about what we think are the real keys to good brewing, we also, well, we remembered that we did a show on brewing disasters that, well, I think we both just really enjoyed because it's fun talking about just how badly we can screw up. So if you have <laughs> brewing disasters, Denny, what should they do? They should email those brewing disasters to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail telling us all about your brewing disaster, because let's face it, we've all had them. Yeah, and they're, they're just great fun to talk about. Now, of course, not in the world of disasters, but in the world of parties, we've got a party. It's coming, and you're invited. That's right, uh, on June 27th, the Wednesday before HomebrewCon kicks off in Portland, Oregon, we are teaming up with Brewcraft USA and Culmination Brewing Company to host their party. We are the MCs, the official MCs. We're going to be doing trivia, giveaways, swag bags, beer galore, food trucks, and whatnot. The admission, how about this? The admission to the party is free. That's right. Free, free, free. free. It's the best price in the entire world, and you're going to have access to all sorts of great beer, and you'll be able to buy raffle tickets to help support uh, local charities and, you know, maybe get your hands on some really great prizes uh, uh, brought to you by Brewcraft USA. And, hey, you know, the whole thing is kind of Miami Vice theme, a little bit of the 80s there. So we're putting together a playlist. What is your favorite 80s song? Let us know. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it's just... This is going to be dangerous. Yeah, well, they better get us suggestions. Otherwise, it's just going to be in the air tonight on on constant loop. No, 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 no. <laughs> Once is enough. That well, that's the reason you need to have that song. Everybody needs to do the air drums to that part. <laughs> Yeah, right. We also want to remind you about uh, one of the people who helps us out here. Brewswag.com has a collection of really killer brewing stuff that uh, you can buy. And when you do, you help support the podcast. So please go to Brewswag.com and see if there's something there you need. Uh, and don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Habitat for Humanity, a wonderful organization helping people build homes. Uh, in, they're all over there in your town. They're in my town. Throw us a few bucks. We'll throw it to Habitat for Humanity, and uh, it will help your karma a lot. Yes, and remember, good karma means good beer. That's right. Okay, so it's time for Feedback. So we're going to start with our first bit of feedback, which comes from Leandro Miners via email. He says, Hi, Denny and Drew. I've just heard your latest Brewfile episodes on the cool ship and was interested by the mention of a Burton Union-style fermenter that Aleworks has running. Uh, perhaps another podcast on that could be interesting. I don't know of many breweries that have one, and it is an interesting alternative fermentation technique. Thanks. 
And Leandro, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is an interesting kind of old school throwback technique. And Kip is one of the few people I know who has one that's actively working with it. Almost every other brewery that I know, including, say, like Firestone Walker, which, you know, sort of built their double barrel ale on their idea of their uh, barrel union. Almost all of them end up, you know, sort of surrendering the system at some point because it turns out it's kind of a, well, it's it's a complicated system to keep running. <laughs> a pain. Just go ahead and say it. It's a pain. It's a pain in the barrel. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I, I'm totally down to talk about that. I think there's actually some really great, interesting things there. And yeah, yeah, you, we can really dig in sort of like, why would you do that? And I'll give you a hint. It's the yeast. So there you go. Thank you for the idea. And we'll see about getting that onto the show at some point. So, and our next piece of feedback comes from Scott Mendez via Facebook. Scott says, Denny and Drew, I've been homebrewing for 10 months and credit a lot of what I learned along the way to experimental brewing. Wow, man. Thanks a lot. Uh, I hope we don't screw you up. I just received my NHC scores. Not sure what they're worth, but I did very well. I entered four entries and scored the following. 19 Diggity 2 Amber Ale got a 34 out of 70. 70, huh? I wonder how you get 70. Must Be Nice Milk Stout got a 37 out of 50. Self-proclaimed, a New England IPA got a 41 out of 50. And I plead the fifth. Coco Cafefe American Stout got a 42 out of 50. Thanks for everything and keep up the awesome work. And Scott, I'm going to turn that around and say back to you, keep up the awesome work, buddy. Those are some very respectable scores, especially since you've only been brewing for 10 months and especially because you've been listening to us. So somehow you managed to overcome all that and make some great beer. Good job, buddy. Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to self-deprecate on this. We're awesome. <laughs> Scott's awesome because he actually uh, did the work and entered and made great beer. Yeah. So good job, had, man. Right. He actually did it. We just sit here and talk about it. Okay. So that's our feedback for this week. And now we have to go into our favorite occasional segment. And by favorite, I assume you can hear the sarcastic air quotes around that. <laughs> it is the Correctional Department of Corrections Department uh, segment. And this one comes from Kevin McAvoy on our whole discussion about Brute IPA uh, last episode and specifically about the terms Brute. Uh, sec and demisec. If you remember correctly in the episode, I had said that, uh, sec and demisec, you know, are basically, you know, sweet and semi-sweet. Uh, and Kevin wrote in to remind us about the actual French that's behind all that. And he said, uh, just a quick linguistic note on the segment about brute IPA while in champagne ease, the terms sec and demisec might denote sweeter wines than brute. The French word sec actually means dry in English. Uh, this new style sounds interesting. Cheers, Kevin. And Kevin's absolutely right. I completely uh, biffed on that one. Yeah, sec does mean drive. It uh, turns out so is brute. It's just in the way I always think about it. It's always in the wine world. It's the only time I ever use the words sec, demi-sec, and brute. And yeah, in, in the wine world, sec and demi-sec mean sweet and semi-sweet, and brute is the really dry one. So it's basically it's like, you know, dry, semi-dry, and really, really dry. Yeah, right. Sec, sec may mean dry, but it's not as dry as brute. So yeah, and, and that's kind of to oppose it to like, say, sack wines. Yeah, and sack, uh, sack wines are actually really sweet, you know, for instance, but there you go. So. <laughs> have you all gotten thoroughly confused now? I know that I have. Yeah, well, consider ourselves corrected, and thank you, Kevin, for uh, writing in to remind us that, you know, uh, languages have different meanings for the exact same word. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's wander over to the pub and have a beer, shall we? Okay. 
I can do that. Okay. Stick around. We're going to uh, let you listen to a message from our sponsors and a little bit of music, and we will be right back in the pub talking about the beer life. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Welcome back. We are here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA, and we're drinking a couple beers. What are you having today, Drew? I'm having a Deschutes Pacific Wonderland Lager. Hey, where did that come from? I don't know. I guess we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But a nice little uh, 5.5% lager with uh, 40 IBUs and a whole bunch of uh, mandarina hops in it. So just kind of a nice little uh, kicky, hoppy version of an American lager. And it makes me very happy to have something like that, particularly since yeah. it's about to get warm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really nice drinking beer, man. I, I like it a lot. I heard somebody refer to it as a Hellas the other day, but I'm not sure it, I would call it a Hellas with 40 IBUs. But I think, I, I think American lager is a good way to, to, to denote it. Well, maybe we should just call it an American Hellas, just to really make everybody irritated. <laughs> oh, boy, that would do it indeed. Wait, no, hold on. I got it. Uh, it's a Hellas IPA. <laughs> and it's not hazy. <laughs> and, sir, what are you drinking? I am having a beer that was sent to us by listener Ed Bove. And if you think back to when we were talking about chanterelle beers a while ago and using dried mushrooms, I made the mistake of saying that you needed more dried mushrooms than fresh in a beer. Ed, who works for a company that uh, sells dried fruit, corrected me on that. And uh, he also sent me a beer that he had made, a, uh, a Belgian-style something or other. You know, with Belgians, it's hard to say exactly. But he had put dried chanterelles in it, and it was very, very nice. And uh, I, I was I was very pleased with it. He, he referred to it as a weak beer, and after I got done with it, I was going, he, he must be uh, joking here. But the, the chanterelles had a real, real nice uh, quality uh, to them. They were kind of like subdued. They came in in the finish of the beer, but you could definitely taste them. So... Ed, thank you very much for sharing with me, man. Both your knowledge and your beer. Really appreciate it. Well, remind me again. Chanterelles as a mushroom, they tend to bring what? Like a uh, stone fruit type character to the beer? Um, kind, well, kind of like apricots specifically, you know, is what I, I get out of it, you know? So uh, if you guys haven't tried mushrooms in your beer, I know it sounds weird. I know people always gag when I say it, but... You know what? If you match the right mushroom to the beer, then it can be a real, real nice flavor enhancement. Sounds good. Now let's get into the beer news. And unfortunately, we have to start with sort of a, well, a sad note. 
and that is that uh, Clayton Cohn, Dr. Clayton Cohn, who has been you know sort of a yeast guru forever and ever and ever, uh, worked for Lalamon Yeast Company, uh, developed Fermade K, uh, did a lot of work to actually really sort of bring not only yeast knowledge out there, but also uh, to really kind of clean up everybody's ideas of what were the possibilities out of dried yeast. Uh, but he, he passed away just recently, and you know it's kind of hard to, to not take note of such a, a reputable figure in the beer industry uh, passing away. Yeah, you know, I uh, I first became aware of Dr. Cohn maybe about 20 years ago when the Homebrew Digest mailing list was around. Jeff Renner, I believe it was, put together a Q&A session with him called A Fortnight of Yeast. And so for a fortnight, Dr. Cohn answered questions that people uh, wrote in about yeast. I asked him about uh, pitching rate and what difference it made and uh, if you should be pitching more or less yeast. And he replied to me uh, with a concept that I have taken to heart and probably upset many people with because it seems to be contrary to what a lot of people think about yeast. But that concept is that there's one enzyme called uh, acetyl-CoA that is responsible for both ester production and cell growth. And when it does one, it isn't doing the other. So basically, if you pitch too much yeast, then it doesn't need to do a lot of growth, and the enzyme goes to producing esters in your beer. Whereas if you pitch a proper amount of yeast, then the enzyme will go to growing yeast cells and keep esters down which flies in the face of a lot of the conventional wisdom that's out there uh, among home brewers, that if you want to create more esters, you pitch less yeast in your beer, which supposedly stresses it. Now, I'm not a microbiologist. I don't know which viewpoint is technically correct, but I can tell you that uh, following Dr. Cohn's advice, uh, I got the results that he claimed that I would. So there you go. Give it a try. Well, and it sounds like uh, more experimentation if we want to do it on our level. But yeah, uh, Dr. Cohn actually was always really gracious about s- sharing out his uh, knowledge and uh, was really sort of instrumental in getting people to uh, understand yeast, which is, again, going back to last episode on the brew files, one of the reasons why I think that homebrewers can get away with a lot more than we used to is because now we actually pay attention to yeast health. Yeah, that's right. And yeast is a lot better than it used to be when we started brewing 20 years ago. Yeah, and I still have notes from microbiologists in the early 80s with, you know, doing dried yeast and doing culturing out of them, finding Pediococcus and Lactobacillus and, you know, Britannomyces and all these dried yeast samples, and we don't get that same problem anymore. So, good job, Doc. Yep, that's right. All right, next story is actually uh, kind of related to one that we had talked about before, you know, uh, Green Flash's uh, ongoing troubles. You remember that first really sort of hit when Green Flash announced that they were putting their Virginia Beach Brewery up for auction. You know, they kind of closed down one week, and then the very next week they had their whole rest of the shenanigans happen. Well, New Realm Brewing Company out of Atlanta, Georgia, a.k.a. Mitch Steele's new effort, just announced that they are buying Green Flash's Virginia Beach Brewery. So we're talking like a rapid expansion there for uh, New Realm, and kind of exciting to see, and also makes you go, man, they've got some good capital backing. (laughs) No kidding, man. So interesting to see that brewery uh, jump up and uh, immediately land in the arms of, you know, somebody who's uh, well been instrumental in opening up in a number of other breweries. So there we go. Yeah, really, man. New Realm had hardly even gotten going when they did this. Yeah, I, I mean, what I think they've been going for about six months now. So yeah, that's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, 
All right, and then after that, uh, there have been a couple of couple stories in the news recently about sexual harassment in the brewing industry. You know, man, and before before we get into this, I just want to say that I look forward to the day when we don't ever have to talk about this again. Yep, me too. Until then, we'll make sure that people know the stories. Uh, a couple of our listeners forwarded uh, the story about Melvin happening, and uh, Melvin uh, Brewing Company has been uh, really famous for kind of doing some of their really sort of big macho-y uh, IPAs with you know, sort of absurdist hot bills. They had a recipe that they released to the homebrew community last year via the HA that made everybody stop and go, wait, is that hot bill right? Because it used, like, a massive amount of hops for five gallons. And they're like, no, that's right. And they had recently expanded from uh, Wyoming into Bellingham, Washington, uh, with kind of a satellite uh, facility. And there was a whole incident that went down that it took about a month or so for it to get publicized where uh, one of the brewers was uh, basically accused of sexually harassing a, a bartender at one of the neighboring brewing companies in uh, Bellingham. And right now, there are a bunch of articles going around that basically Melvin had always kind of engaged in sort of very um, edgy humor. And so their contact us page uh, included statements along the lines of, you know, show us, show us on the doll where the Melvin touched you type, uh, type of thing. So this is one of those places where edgy humor can kind of come and bite you in the butt as a business. Yeah. Uh, but Melvin's been, you know, taking steps to respond. And, you know, people, of course, have been castigating them over whether or not the steps that they've been taking are enough. And interestingly enough, in the uh, Seattle Times and in our good friend Jeff Allworth's blog, Birvana, uh, talking about that business, for instance, at the Bellingham location seems to be uh, suffering as a bit of a backlash because of this. So that's kind of interesting to dig into. And, of course, it took a while for... Uh, uh, Melvin to come back with any sort of response, which of course never actually helps in this. And that leads us into the next story, which came up and really got blown up uh, thanks to social media just recently. Where, you know, just to emphasize that sexual harassment is uncool in uh, no matter what, uh, you know, in the Bellingham Melvin case, it was, you know, male brewer harassing a, a female bartender. And in this case, with Wild Heaven in Georgia, one of their bartenders, uh, a, a guy, got sexually harassed, got groped in the groin by a, a friend of the business owner. And at first, the business refused to give him names to be able to press charges and all that sort of stuff. And he finally went onto a long tirade on Facebook that got picked up and spread around by a lot of people. And finally, Wild Heaven responded and actually started to make moves about the things. Yeah, I mean, look, I know most of our breweries are small businesses, and I know there's kind of that sort of, you know, boys will be boys type of attitude, but guys, the rules are pretty simple. Don't put your hands on somebody unless you're invited to put your hands on somebody. <laughs> really? I mean, it, it should be so obvious, huh? Yeah. I, and of course, I mean, look, uh, we're also dealing with a hobby and an industry where, you know, the chief product is something that lowers social inhibitions, but don't be a dick. Yeah, really. I mean, you know, just because you're using your mouth to drink doesn't mean that you don't need to use your brain to think at the same time. And in our last piece of uh, beer news here in the pub is actually somewhat related in a way, you know, in the idea of like, hey, you know, we need to increase diversity in the brewing world because it's good for us. And the Brewers Association, they actually went forward and, and did something about it. Uh, don't you want to give the details? Yeah, um, basically the Brewers Association is working with J. Nickel Jackson Beckham, to uh, be their diversity ambassador. She's going to travel around and uh, speak at various craft brewing events to talk about uh, how uh, diversity benefits everybody in the industry, besides just being the right thing to do. 
Um, Bob Pease, who is a good buddy of ours and the president and CEO of the Brewers Association, made a really great statement that sums it up here. He said, craft beer is made by and for everyone. And uh, the Brewers Association is just making sure that uh, that message gets put into practice as well as into just words. Uh, and uh, she's actually a assistant professor of communications over at Randolph College and is actually a active and avid home brewer as well. So walking the walk, talking the talk, brewing the beers, and uh, helping to spread the good, the, the good word. Yeah, and uh, good on your Brewers Association. Keep it up, please. Uh, and uh, for the record, of course, you know, since Denny and I are both on the AHA uh, side of the house, you know, which is, of course, the daughter organization of the Brewers Association, the AHA also has a diversity uh, subcommittee that was launched a few years back and is actively making strides to include more women and minorities and also people from foreign countries into the into the mix. So lots of efforts being made along that line. So let's uh, let's keep plugging away, shall we? Yeah, let's do. Okay, let's uh, finish up our beers and head over to the brewery, shall we? Yes, time to talk about some new products and some brewing. Okay, stick around. We're going to have a message from our sponsors, and we'll be right back from the brewery. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We're sitting here in the brewery with gleaming stainless steel all around us, equipment piled to the ceiling, and uh, we're going to talk about a new product that we just had a chance to try out from Crafty Shipping, and they're called Crafty Shippers. Basically, it's a nice, easy way to mail beer to somebody, and this time of year with the uh, NHC going on, a lot of people need to ship beers to that competition and other ones. And so, uh, Steve Sullivan, who runs Crafty Shipping, sent us and some... And is a member of my Maltos Falcons Homebrew Club. Whoa, even better. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Say hi for me. Um, Steve has come up with these Crafty Shipping Boxes. They look a bit like egg cartons, uh, but they're made to fit a beer bottle into them. He sent us some to try out, so... I sent Drew some to shoot Pacific Wonderland. Imagine that. Yeah. And How did uh, I get that? <laughs> and Drew is going to uh, ship me some beer back, at which point we'll have a full report on them. But the initial report, Drew, is? The box arrived perfectly intact, sturdy, and, I mean, actually really kind of nice lightweight packaging for, you know, the beer to the point where, you know, everything was really the main weight was the beer itself. So, and to get the beers out, just open up the box and remove the clamshell. Boom, beer. No dealing with bubble wrap, no dealing with peanuts, no nothing. So very nice. Now, I'm also going to take suggestions from everybody. What exactly should I ship Denny back? Beer, man. That's that's all that matters. Go get me a nice uh, Los Angeles-made Pilsner and send it up. Yeah, all right, but if you have suggestions for things I should send Denny, please let me know at drew at experimentalbrew.com. 
Yeah, and we know what everybody's going to say, so we won't listen to them. <laughs> in the meantime, uh, if you want to try out some uh, crafty shippers for yourself, uh, you can go to their website, craftyshipping.com, see them and buy them. Uh, they're only available in the 12-ounce bottle size right now, but Steve tells us he's working on other sizes, and we'll be talking about them more uh, once Drew ships me some beer. So I guess that may be a year or two, huh? Yeah, well, hey, you know, it, it, it takes time to ship things. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. hey, so why don't we talk about some brewing here in the brewery? Let's do uh, that. So, Denny, why don't you give everybody an update on your American Mild effort that you've been making? I have finally come up with what I think is a darn close version of my American Mild. Uh, the key to it seems to be using mecha-grade malt and nothing else in the malt world and uh, using nothing but the... Uh, YCH American Noble Hops, uh, they're the debittered leaf that comes from when a cryo hops is made. So I used uh, 40% Mecha Grade Lamata, uh, about 53% of their Metolius, which is kind of a, a Munich kind of equivalent, and uh, about 7% of the Opal 44, which is kind of a non-crystallized crystal, if that makes any sense. Uh, I used uh, debittered laurel, Simcoe, and mosaic hops in it. Came out to be 1035 original gravity and 3.1% alcohol, around 20 IBUs. I think it's darn close. Uh, I wouldn't mind getting a bit more mouthfeel into it, so I may make another shot and add some crystal. But, uh, you know, buddy, I'm actually going to bottle some up and send it down to you for your comments. Oh, well, there you go. And I imagine that we have a way to do that now. <laughs> How about that? Well, you need to send me the crafty shippers back so I can ship some to you. There you go. And, and uh, yeah, I'll look forward to seeing what that's like. And at the very least, I know I'll get to try it in Portland, right? Yeah, I will definitely have some in Portland. It'll either be this version or the uh, the next one. Uh, with I think that this last tweak will, will get me there. Uh, the the Mecha Grade malts just added so much flavor to the beer, and the uh, debittered American Noble hops kind of got me hop flavor without a ton of bitterness or a mm -hmm. ton of vegetation to kind of, to stomp on the the grain flavor. So, like I said, I'm it's by far the closest I've come yet, and uh, I think we're almost there on the American Mild. And there will be one version or another at the Cascade Brewers Society booth at uh, Homebrew Con in Portland. And in the meanwhile, for me, I just did uh, my sort of spin on an American Mild, although you know not going as focused as you did. I actually took my my traditional English Dark Mild, my CDGK Mild. And I sort of remixed it a little bit, so you know I came out to about you know 1035ish gravity, 1034ish, and I used traditional ingredients where I used Maris Otter, I used malted oats because I love malted oats, I used uh, some double roasted crystal from Simpsons, I used some Carafa Three, the dehust German chocolate, and I also used some Simpsons pale chocolate to kind of give me a, a nice dark color. So the thing came into about you know 12.713 SRM uh, area. So good dark color, and then just bittered with some Magnum, and then I went into the Whirlpool with an ounce of the Simcoe debittered American Noble hops from uh, YCH, and that has the West Yorkshire yeast on it, and I brewed that on, well, five days ago now, and it goes into the keg tomorrow. Kind of a speedy brew, but I've got places to serve it, and I'll, I'm going to have a, a version that's probably up at uh, PDX as well, because I had just 
adore the idea of having a mild on hand. And if these leaf hops work the way that, that they did in the Saison, I just think it's going to be awesome because it'll be that nice American hop hit without it. And don't forget, at least according to our sources, those American nobles, they're coming soon to regular homebrew stores uh, in the area. They, they are, uh, I think, what, on target for release in June? Yeah, uh, last I heard, they were going to be uh, hopefully releasing them right around the time of homebrew con. So uh, if you're there, maybe you'll get a chance to pick up some samples. Yeah, and really, give them a try because we really dig these things. I think, uh, I mean, as fun as the cryo hops are, and we'll get into the cryo hops shortly, as fun as the cryo hops are, I think these offer something completely different. And let's be clear, because a couple people that I've mentioned American nobles to, uh, I just assumed that it was noble variety European hops being grown here in America. That's not it at all. They are American variety hops, like I said, like uh, like Simcoe, like Mosaic, like Laurel. But because of the fact that uh, all the lupulin has been removed from them, they have kind of like a, a low bittering quality and what's left is just kind of flavor like you might get from uh, European noble hops. Yeah, and, and exactly. You know, it's kind of a marketing term and you can debate about, you know, whether or not the marketing term is confusing, but it, the intent is to sort of give you the impression of what these things can do. Yeah, right. Exactly. And uh, if you have a chance to try them, try them because I guarantee you that you have not tried hops like this before. Indeed. All right. And then one last thing to talk about in the brewery is, uh, well, just hanging out, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my club, for some reason, decided that they wanted to do a Skype session with Drew. So uh, he uh, electronically visited our club meeting last Monday night at uh, Ninkasi Brewing. That's where we meet. And uh, spent, oh, probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour talking to our club about uh, the Falcons educational program, how to go about duplicating something like that. Talked about uh, Cezanne. What else, man? Uh, making fun of Denny. Well, drinking, of course. Drinking hazy IPA. Right, yeah. He was he was drinking hazy IPA as he was doing this, trying to get the, a reaction out of me, and I steadfastly refused to react. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, but I mean, really, it was just hanging out and a- answering questions, telling people, you know, things that I work on in the brewery. I actually gave people a little, a little brief tour of the brewery via uh, camera, even though it was completely horribly messy. And we got, to, we got to see Hugo. Yeah, you got to see Hugo, the Wonder Dog. And, uh, you know, it, it, because, of course, he came into the brewery to start to make noise. But no, I mean, all in all, it was great fun. And uh, Denny and I actually have done this uh, several times now where we hang out with the homebrew clubs via, you know, Skype or Google Hangouts or something like that. And it's just, it's a nice way to kind of stop in and visit and offer, you know, you know, questions, answers, you know, talk about some things that, that we strongly believe in. But really, it was just a lot of fun to be able to do. Yeah, and we have done this frequently with any number of clubs. So uh, if your club would like to have one or the other or both of us uh, talk to you via electronic media, uh, let us know and we'll see what we can put together for you. Yeah, I, th- I think the great one was uh, the last one that we did before this. I did for my car during L.A. Rush Hour. <laughs> yeah, that was really good, man. Uh, that was with the Stony Creek homebrewers in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. Well, and, of course, the other thing is, Denny, you got to tell them about their uh, your club's reaction to my club's meeting. Yeah, um, basically when Drew was describing his club process, he mentioned that they took a break for lunch. <laughs> And in my club, you should have seen the faces. Everybody was like, what? 
the Maltos Falcons meetings go for like three or four hours on Sunday, starting around 11 o'clock in the morning. And there's a, a lunch break in there someplace. And, yep. uh, that's, that's unusual enough that I think that you kind of like broke some people's minds in my club. Yeah. I just thought it was funny because it, it, it never occurs to me that it's any different than how everybody else does it. But yeah. We meet from 11 o'clock to usually around three 30 on a Sunday. So yeah, you need some food in there. Well, yeah. And, and we meet from, uh, Seven until about eight thirty or so on uh, on a Monday night, so it's a very very different vibe than that. Well, see, I mean, the problem is, you know, in L.A., that would be basically you're meeting for as long as you're driving. <laughs> I guess that's true, man. You you guys have a, another reason for doing that down there. Indeed. All right, let's get out of here. Let's go talk some science, shall we? Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to head over to the lab, and when we come back, we'll be talking about our latest experiment where we compared cryo hops to regular t90 pellets uh interesting confusing all that kind of stuff so stick around we're going to be right back this winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019 inspired by the pacific northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at y yeast our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Okay, we're here in the lab now, and besides just Drew and me, which is always boring, we have asked some of our Igors to join us. We have Eric Pierce. Hi, Eric. Hi. We have Brad McLeod. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Good, man. And we have Miguel Loza. How are you today, Miguel? Doing well, thank you. Cool. So basically, because Drew and I couldn't make any sense whatsoever out of these uh, results, we've asked these guys to come on and uh, talk about their experiences and to help us kind of try and puzzle them out. Yeah, so, I, uh, I suppose we should probably set up what, what exactly we're talking about here first, though. Yeah, <laughs> why don't you go ahead and recap the experiment? Okay, so for everybody who's uh, been out there and been paying attention to how Denny and I have been brewing or been paying attention to the hop world recently, you know that our sponsor, YCH, has released a new product onto the market called Cryo Hops. Essentially, they're concentrated hops you know, that they you know, sort of knock away most of the vegetative material and end up with things with highly concentrated oils and highly concentrated uh, you know, alpha acid. So where some of these varieties you know, would normally have, say, you know, 12% alpha acid. You know, when we go and we take a look at the cryo hops and look at these packages, they're coming in at like 22, 24, 26. You know, so the, the whole idea behind cryo hops is, you know, 
more concentrated hop character, more concentrated hop bitterness with you know, less uh, material to absorb liquid, less material to give sort of vegetal flavors in the beer, you know, just kind of less of the stuff that you don't want and more of the stuff that uh, hop heads really do want. So what we decided to do was actually go ahead and put this to the test. And we followed YCH's guidelines for replacement. And, you know, basically YCH says, you know, use uh, essentially half the amount of cryo that you would for your normal, you know, your normal everyday hop, you know, what are called T90 pellets. And YCH very graciously sent out samples of both cryo hops and the T90 pellets uh, to a whole bunch of our different Igors and, you know, allowed us to basically go and brew. So the guys uh, went and grabbed their hops and then either brewed our sort of basic uh, American Pale Ale or our basic IPA, did one version, you know, straight up with T90 pellets, just like we all normally would have for years and years and years. They brewed up the, the second batch, you know, using T90 pellets still to do the bittering, but also then to do, you know, uh, Mosaic and Citra in the Whirlpool, and then uh, Cascade uh, Cryo Hops as a dry hop. And then the idea, of course, is go and take those off and you know, do a triangle test and see what people would actually guess. Now, before we get into what the actual results were, you know, this was always going to be kind of an, an interesting experiment because we were following YCH's guidelines in terms of substitutes. So could you actually detect a difference just when you sort of kept everything in line instead of going, you know, whole hog with the cryo and see if you could actually really punch up the oils. Uh, so, Denny, you want to you talk some results? Yeah, well, basically, the results are all over the place. Um, it was, overall, I would say that it was probably harder for people to tell the difference between the cryo hops and the T90s than I would have guessed. Um you know, I, I hesitate to get into p-values because they're kind of misleading. But basically, we had two of our testers, uh, Miguel and Brad, who ended up with significant results on theirs. And it looks like really nobody else did. It was, uh, you know, some of them were pretty close. Some of them were not so close. Uh in terms of telling the difference, and then the results were kind of like all over the board about which one was preferred if they could tell the difference. Yeah, and and by the way, this was there were twelve different trials, you know, twelve different brewers doing this test, and so out of those twelve, only two achieved significance. So that's uh, that's rather interesting to me at this sort of substitution level that we did. Um, so why don't we actually uh, break into uh, some of those successful results, uh, Brad? You you had. Uh, you had one of the successful trials. What did you think? Yeah, from what I could tell, uh, a lot of people had a hard time tasting the difference between the beer. That being said, there's a lot of characteristics that I noted, um, you know, light, light bitterness or uh, more bitter or smooth or sweet, things like this that tended to a few people agreed upon uh, as tasting some, some differences. Um, my brew was also uh, had a few uh, issues. The original gravities were both much higher than I was aiming for and a little bit different from one another. Uh, but I think uh, what a lot of people were tasting uh, or were identifying as being different was due to things like the carbonation level. There was an issue with that as well from uh, passive carbonating in the keg. So... Uh, I did get a lot of comments on uh, one being um, more carbonated than the other, and I think that probably skewed the result. 
and as I mentioned um, in uh, in our uh, email uh, sessions, that uh, the first time I did this, the first session, I used uh, clear cups for both the first part of the experiment and the second part. So when there was uh, a difference in the head uh, from the pores, uh, that was that was also pretty obvious. Mm, yeah, uh, but uh, now you had not, uh, you did the IPA, right? Correct. Yes. All right, and so now what I think is interesting is that the other successful result, or the other one that showed significance, I should say, was uh, Miguel. Uh, Miguel, you also did an IPA, correct? That's correct. So what did you see as, as the differences, in, or what did your tasters spot that made it stand out? A lot of people kind of favored the cryo hops, and they could um, tell the difference. I had 17 people try uh, the beers, and out of the 17, 14 people... Uh, successfully identified um, uh, the, the correct beer, which was a cryo hop beer. And uh, any any comments that they had? Yeah, they had um, a few comments, and and they were mostly positive. Um, they uh, let me see. I I have it in my notes here, but because I I jotted down every comment that they that they gave me, and um, they said um, hop beer. Different aroma uh, and more more intensity. It tasted fresh, fruitier, tropical. Those were some of the comments that I received. And then uh, that leaves Eric. Uh, Eric, you had uh, the pale ale, correct? Right. And and your results came back as not significant. That's true. But if you split up the two sessions, the session where I had actually more tasters, I had I think it was. Uh, 12 and or 10 I, I forget which I, I think it's uh um anyway the the one I had more I uh, was uh um it was split fifth uh, so I got 50 percent on that and those are the more experienced tasters which we've been talking a lot about rating tasters and trying to get an idea some palates are more discriminating so when you've got something that's really close like this uh eh, you know you get you you're, I, I I don't know there's a small sample so it's hard to conclude make solid conclusions but I got a sense that the more experienced brewers, even I mean, you know, home brewers, they had a, uh, they were, they had a little bit of an edge, I think, on uh, on, on tasting this. And there were some, just you know, descriptions that were like, you know, I had uh, where they were tasting the difference in how it behaved up front versus you know in the finish. Um, aromatic, I didn't, I don't know if I got much on the differences, but. Um, I, I will. I will say that uh, that the I, I and I'll testify that this stuff really absorbs a heck of a lot less beer. <laughs> in the uh, <laughs> you know, it was remarkable. You know, you could get a seventy-five percent improvement in absorption. Although on the homebrew scale, who cares? But I don't know. Yeah, maybe, right. I have to well, agree with that too. You know, your results point out something, uh, which is that. If there's a major, major difference, then probably even inexperienced tasters will pick it up. But if it's something yep. that is uh, going to be kind of uh, closer or, or, or kind of a, a more subtle difference, then that's where the taster's experience comes into play in picking it up. Yeah, everybody struggled. Also, yeah. um, Danny, I think also the environment of where the tasters are uh, going through these beers as well it, uh, makes a lot of a difference. Um, I try to, I, I guess it worked out this way where I was at a brewery doing the tasting 
and everybody was kind of separated, and they all came in different waves of uh, of people. Not everybody at once was trying it, and so nobody could really um, give any answers or or be able to uh, steer somebody in their direction. Yeah, I, I think one time we're going to have to do an experiment where we uh, where we actually test that sort of thing because you, if you go and look at like professional breweries and they actually have like QC and QA labs, you know they'll they'll have like individualized tasting booths that are designed to be minimal stimulation and just allow you to focus on the glasses. It'd be kind of interesting yeah. to see if that has an impact. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, and and those, I mean, you don't even see anything. There's just a window that opens, and the cups come out, and the window closes, and that's it. So we could construct uh, them out of out of refrigerator boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I got gator board and foam core. Yeah, that, that would work. Right? Um, so, so tell me, you three guys, what were your own perceptions of the two beers? I couldn't tell them apart. You couldn't. How about you, Brad? I had a hard time. Even with knowing it, I, you know, maybe like half the time I could, and all right, I'm biased. So, all right, Brad, how about you? So, uh, I had my wife uh, give me the the triangle taste the first time around, and I had to go to second pours before I was confident in uh, discerning differences. Um, the one thing that I, that anecdote that was interesting was uh, I noticed in the cryo after after the second pour. Um, after, so sorry to back up after correctly identifying, um, in the first round, um, then going to, uh, uh, part two, um, I noticed a pineapple, um, flavor or aroma. It was kind of unclear. Neither of them had a very strong aroma, um, and somewhat of a citrus note. And I had one other taster in my second, uh, trials, uh, that had the same exact, uh, perception. So, I don't know if that's, you know, that's obviously not uh, statistically significant, but the fact that we were both able to correctly identify the beers and come up with that on the cryo beer, I thought was kind of interesting. And Miguel, how about you? What were your perceptions? Well, I kind of agreed with some of the uh, people that tried uh, the beers is that um, the cryo was definitely noticeable, uh, a little more uh, intense than the than the uh, T90. And then uh, the aroma wasn't much noticeable as it was the flavor of it for for both beers right and yeah and that's what that's what i'm finding too is that uh, when i use the cryo hops i have to really bump up what i would think would be enough for aroma to get the aroma but the flavor always comes through to me really really clearly you know so, so yeah now i wonder if how this would change if instead of doing a pale ale or an ipa you know if we were like really and keep in mind, guys, if you take a look at the recipe online, and we'll include it in the show notes, you know, the, the recipe is a, a relatively restrained recipe. It's not, it's not designed to be a hot bomb. And, but everybody uh, loved it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a classic IPA, right, in a sort of old-school fashion. I, I wonder if we would see more differences uh, apparent to the audience of tasters if this were sort of one of those big old hot bombs where we're really trying to load in a lot of oil. And if that would actually suddenly, you know, make those differences pop out even more. And on this round of testing, we basically kind of went, you know, a little bit more subtle, <laughs> yeah, as much as subtle as an IPA can be. Yeah, you know, when we're talking, uh, I mean, the the cryo hops were in half ounce packages. The um, T90s were in one ounce packages, and that that does make the AAUs uh, approximately equal. 
but I'm not convinced that's the best way to figure amounts for uh, aroma or flavor hops. Yeah, probably not. Um, so now, guys, here's the other question. And now that you've been through this and you've played with the, the cryo hops, you know, we talked a little bit about the absorption factor, which is, of course, part of the reason why these would be insanely popular with professional breweries. But do you feel that the cryo hops bring value to to the brewers? Are you are you going to kind of keep using these and playing around with them? Uh, let's start with Brad. I mean, I would certainly consider giving them another shot. I think the idea of doing one of these hop bombs would be more of interest to me, um, and perhaps repeating uh, this experiment with a different recipe uh, just for fun uh, would be kind of interesting. But overall, I don't know that it. Uh, I was, uh, you know blown away by it i guess right. given that given that most people had a hard time discerning the differences including myself um when i first was tasting them yeah i think i think they'd become more apparent if if we had done this as a one-to-one substitution one ounce of t90 one ounce of cryo <laughs> sure. yeah I, I i agree i think that would have worked out better uh, at least i think it would have been easier for people to discern the difference all right uh miguel your thoughts on the cryo hops yeah i definitely uh, I'm going to keep using them, especially, especially on the late editions, dry hop and uh, whirlpool. Try, uh, try and get more of those uh, more of those hop bomb, hop oil characters in there. Yeah. Perfect. All right. And then Eric, how about you? What are your thoughts on the cryo? Yeah, I, I agree with Miguel. I, I, I've used them, uh, you know, previous to this experiment, almost like sort of as an insurance against maybe getting like chlorophyll-y kind of uh, flavors. Although I, I, it's not like, well, oh, gee, I did this and I got chlorophyll. I'll try the cryo but i just you know a lot of things you do is like you know as insurance so i use them in uh, new england ipas uh with the bio transformation thing uh early on and uh i've always loved those beers so i won't run away from them i won't maybe maybe not run to them so it's kind of another tool in the toolbox i guess you know and, and your 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 observation about new england ipa is really valid because one of one of the things that i don't care for in new england ipas are the kind of like uh, tannic sensations you get from using huge amounts of hops for the the dry hops, and that comes from all the vegetal matter in the hops. And with the, that being removed from the cryo hops, then I could see that maybe somebody could make a New England IPA that I could actually enjoy. Well, Denny, you are a home brewer. You do have cryo hops. You could do it yourself. Yeah, I, I have other things to do, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, so I, I think it's safe to say that at least on this particular test as to whether or not, you know, the cryos were, you know, discernibly different to people. You know, I think it's fairly safe for us to say that, uh, that the results seem to show that in general, tasters could not tell the difference between, you know, T90 pellets and cryo hop pellets when done at a, you know, 1 to 0.5 ratio, right? So if you're using half as much cryo as you are, Using your T90s, uh, tasters are having a hard time to tell the difference. Now, that could be a good thing, depending upon what you want to do, uh, or it could be a bad thing. And I think the recommendation definitely does seem to be that there are interesting characters to have out of these cryo hops, but you got to uh, kind of jam on the gas a little bit more than, you know, just going halfsies. Yeah, you know, and my own observation about it is that uh, although I did not do the triangle test, um, I find that. Uh, with cryo hops, I I do need to use more of them to equal the amount of, of flavor that I get or aroma that I get out of uh, T90s. But even when I don't get the same amount of flavor or aroma 
I'm pretty certain that I can detect a difference in the quality of that flavor and aroma with the cryo hops being more direct, if that makes any any sense. You know, the, the more more in your face, more easily identifiable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you guys, you know, the one other thing that we didn't talk about was the, the brewing experiences. Because I know amongst the Igors, as, as folks were talking, uh, it was like everybody was talking about like different rates of clarity, different you know, sort of different settling things that were happening. Did any of you guys experience anything like where at least early on your cryo batches and your T90 batches were decidedly different while the fermentation was happening or even early kegging? This Miguel, I, I only noticed the color difference. And, and what was the color difference? Um, you know, one was uh, darker than, than the other. I can't remember which one was darker, but um, you could really tell. It was a big difference in, in just the color itself. Yeah, here your notes say that cryo was darker. Uh, was the darker of the two? Um, that's very interesting, man. I wonder why that would be. And even in, uh, in the finished beers, you can tell the difference as well. So, uh, so, so you guys all got color differences between the two? I didn't. I, think, I don't. I don't remember seeing color. Uh, okay, I, I do remember one was more actively fermenting, but I mean. It's kind of marginal. I mean, you know, a little fluffier. I got pictures. It's like, eh, yeah, okay, this one. I think it's probably just natural variations between, you know, you know, fermentations. I mean, I had the same fermenters, same everything was the same. Um, the only thing that was different was one I had to top up a little more, um, and I was worried. Oh, that's going to cause a problem. I couldn't tell. Yeah, I tend to agree with Eric that it was just uh, it, any difference was pretty slight. I think. Holding the beer up to the light, uh, you could see a slight difference in um, the translucence aspect of it, but it was very slight. Yeah, I might have saw something like that too. It was it was small. Okay, it's subtle differences for for a big product. And I, I, I do have to laugh because Eric, you posted a a picture uh, into our group of your dry hop canisters between the two beers. Yeah. And the one on the T90 is so much fuller than, than the cryo. It's not even funny. So, well, I yeah. think this is interesting. Hey, guys, any other uh, points that we need to, that you want to discuss before we uh, get on back out of the lab and go back to, uh, back to the rest of the show before we go? Uh, yeah, it wasn't just all subjective tasting. You know, it wasn't all just tasting panels. Uh, Miguel, you actually got a chance to get uh, some analysis done on these, right? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, really nice for uh, Y-Labs to kind of offer uh, to test these. And, you know, looking at the results, it's not very very much noticeable as far as IBUs are concerned. Well, I was going to say, so yeah, you had them, you had White Labs do just basically a standard alcohol and IBU test, correct? Yeah, and they did uh, ABB and ABW. As well as IVUs, and and you, you want to walk us through what those uh, what those results were? Yeah, um, my ABB was um, a little bit different, and I think the difference was because of uh, my burners. When I my my mash into two kettles, I think I had one burner slightly um, uh, more intense than the other, and that's where the uh, original gravity was uh, different. Uh, I think one was 162, um, that was the uh, pellet, and then 168 for the cryo. So when White Labs provided the ABB, uh, you can see that difference. Uh, it was 6.75 ABB for the cryo and 6.37 for the T90. And then when you look at IBUs, uh, the cryo was slightly higher 
then the T90 was 52 IBUs, and the T90 was 47. Right, so not not a huge difference in anything, but uh, a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, and if anything, I would have thought that those differences would make the cryo harder to detect, but you got positive results about people being able to detect it. So, once again, I'm baffled. That's great. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I had the results uh, printed out, and after every person tried their beers and they went through the triangle testing, I showed them the actual lab results, and they were kind of baffled of the little difference in how much a difference it made in perception. Well, but again, I mean, yeah, I mean, you measured IBUs and alcohol, but not, not any of the hop oil constituents, right? So, I mean, that's always right. a possibility that that's where the detection laid. Right. Correct. Well, so I guess, I guess we can kind of say that uh, cryo hops may or may not make a noticeable difference. They may or may not a difference that you prefer and the only real way to find out is that you guys need to try them for yourselves and decide for yourselves it could vary with variety it could vary with i don't know i was wondering about you know uh spoilage i mean i think people talk about dissolved oxygen contributed by dry hopping i mean so yeah, i'm gonna well, try my beers in a couple of weeks and see if there's well and, and that's why i was saying eric that the people need to try it for themselves because something like this is so influenced by your particular brewing process and your particular tastes that it's really hard to generalize uh you know which is why i was saying you know if you do a single experiment sure it's it's easy to draw a conclusion from that but when you have 12 people doing the experiment it's just not so easy to figure out anything well in this particular case though i think it's safe for us to say that uh, a 1 to 0.5 uh, ratio substitution of t uh, cryo for t90 uh, you know, falls into that range of most people can't. Uh, most people can't detect the difference. So uh, there you I go. Think that's uh, true. All right. Well, hey. So thank you guys for joining us, and uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your day to sit down and talk some results. And I hope that you guys had fun doing the experiment. And we'll be back for more experimentation shortly. And that does uh, remind me, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, listeners, if you do have suggestions for the podcast in terms of what you'd like to see done in terms of experiments. Don't forget that you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We will gladly take uh, suggestions for experiments uh, and you know, leave us a comment. Leave us a, leave us a note. Tell us what you want us to test. And, hey, what do you think of cryo hops if you've actually had a chance to use them? Uh, are you a fan? Are you not a fan? You know how to get us. Tell us and let us know. Okay. I guess we better get out of here and get on with the rest of the show, huh? Something like that. All right. Stick around. We'll be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Reuben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Hey, we're here in the lounge, and we're lounging. We're going to hear Drew talking to Joshua M. Bernstein about his latest book. So fill us in, buddy. Yeah, so as you guys know, Denny and I did a book called Homebrew All-Stars, where we interviewed 25 people and kind of categorized them and brought you tips, tricks, and secrets. Well, it turns out we're not the only ones with that idea. And uh, Joshua is, you know, written four other books, including The Complete Beer Course, The Complete IPA, and uh, Brewed Awakening. Uh, published this book via Sterling Epicure just this month. And we get to, while he's sitting in Nashville at CBC having a, a marijuana terpene filled, uh, beer in a brewery, we get to, t- <laughs> we get to sit down and talk about, you know, sort of, you know, the stories that uh, homebrewers can tell, some of the things that he sees differently between American homebrewers and global uh, brewers and exactly how he went about, uh, setting up the book. So kind of cool to see the the various stories and really kind of the the people focus that we get both out of home brewing and out of craft brewing. And so uh, kind of uh, sit back and get ready. You might get a little uh, contact uh, high from uh, Josh's beer. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Experimental Brewing. Uh, you know, this is Lounge. And, well, you know, it's only right that we're sitting here and having a beer. And I actually have on the phone with me from Nashville currently, uh, Joshua Bernstein. Uh, Josh, you're actually drinking a beer right now. Yeah. I had, have no idea what I got myself into. Uh, I'm at Southern Grist Brewing down here. And... Uh, Everything on tap is like double IPAs, and it's uh, afternoon right now, and I thought maybe not go down that path. So, like, if anything cans, it's under, you know, 8%. So, basically, I got their Contact Hive, which is one of those IPAs made with, like, marijuana terpenes. Oh, nice. So, it's pretty much as dank as you're ever going to get a beer in your life. It's like, was it tangerine peel, flower honey, purple haze, and tangy terpenes, too, and it's just like, it literally feels like you just put a bowl in water and then let it soak out and then you're drinking the drinking liquid that came out of there. <laughs> in some ways that reminds me of college. In some ways it doesn't, at least not as far as I can talk. Uh, and I laugh because of course there's just all that recent news about the brewers down in Miami getting in trouble because they wanted to have their terpenes fest. And then the Fed stepped in and said, uh, you can't do that. So, yeah. And you know, you're finding it's such a patchwork litigation right now. I'm sitting here drinking this beer and you hear of people like uh, in Vermont, uh, Long Trail want to do the CBD stuff too, and they got the kibosh on that. And other people like Coalition Brewing in uh, Oregon had like a CBD beer festival. <laughs> so it's just um, at one place, like anything else in life, one place you can celebrate things for the utmost, and next uh, people are going to be knocking on your door. Well, I think it's also how much people are paying attention. <laughs> you know, the more attention you call yeah. them, probably the, the more likely you are to be told, hey, no. So Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah it's 
interesting. That's a word. <laughs> interesting is definitely a word. So, uh, yeah. Joshua, what, uh, let's uh, dig in. I mean, obviously, you're there at a brewery. I'm assuming that you're in Nashville for CBC as we're talking. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, for me, it's uh, less learning about wastewater management, more the uh, important things, which is boozing and smoozing and talking to people and really trying to generate this sort of a next set of story ideas. You don't really get story ideas by sitting around on your computer all day long. You got to get out there and talk to people. And what better place to talk to people than one of the biggest concentrations of, uh, of brewers, not only in America, but the world view right now. And where there's plenty of free-flowing beer. I also find that's very important to idea generation. Uh, yeah, there was one of those uh, bike, you know, those bikes that people ride on with like eight or ten people, and you just get hammered <laughs> and scream, woo, as you go down State Street. It was like nine o'clock, fresh off the bus, and there's already people going down the streets going woo, which is just lets so, you know that you are in town. And this is what's happening. It's like, oh, the rules have changed. This is not normal polite society anymore. So, yeah, for sure. So why don't you tell everybody, uh, you know, about your background, you know, just kind of like the basic biographical details. Like if we were going to go start and write a biography of you, how would we start? <laughs> yeah, Josh, like drinking beer. I mean, that would be probably line 1A. But no, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist, grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, went to journalism school, made zines in my spare time, did all that fun DIY stuff, and then got to New York City randomly after a road trip uh, blew up and I ended up like stranded in Great Falls, Montana on the first day of fall, which are very great portents of the future. And so ended up in Denver for a little bit. And uh, my friend in New York City was like, I got a free bedroom. You want to come here? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, you can say that I had this whole domination plan of writing about beer and, and doing all that stuff. But no, I just didn't want to live in a bunk bed with my little brother. And being in New York City felt like the best uh, opportunity or, you know, the only opportunity. And so, you know, slowly as the years passed, I was like, you know what, I'm here. I should start doing the writing. And so I uh, started writing about what you do when you're 22 and in a big city where the bars don't shut till four in the morning. I started writing about drinking and uh, I got columns for uh, a newspaper called the New York Press. Uh, Time Out New York, New York Mag, all these people hired me to write about bars. When you go to bars, you don't always want to drink uh, the dregs. And so using, you know, it's a sort of a mythical time in journalism. There's still a budget to actually pay for expenses. So you're able to go there. And I didn't have to just drink the $2 things. I could try all the Bear Republics. I could try Stone and all these great beers that are really there and really sort of changing the way that New York City and America drank beer. And so, you know, and I started writing about these people, and it was really interesting. Not a lot of people were approaching it from sort of the humanistic aspect, that a lot of people were approaching craft beer or beer, whatever you want to grab the terminology you want to use it, as just a sort of odd thing. And that's one of this, like, strange thing, like, look at this weird thing in the corner. Look at this. It's so different. And so I wanted to find out about the people, passion, creativity, struggle, all these sort of um, great elements of journalism, and beer had it all. And it also had the thing that I'd like to do when I got off work. And so I put two and two together and started um, writing uh, locally at first. And I uh, got picked up nationally pretty quickly by people like uh, Gourmet Magazine uh, and By Blanche. I got in with them. And then uh, one thing led to Draft Magazine. Then one thing led to the next. And uh, in '09, I mean, this is sort of the story that you tell fellow writers and they want to shiv you. But uh, I had my column of New York Press and one of my beer columns. And then an editor at Sterling Publishing read it on the subway. And he's like, oh, we need someone to do a beer book. Why don't we contact this guy? And so, you know, it was, it was luck, but it was, you know, nine years of hard work getting to that point where luck could happen. And then uh, they want me to write a book on stout, so I would have done it, because when you're a writer, you'd write a book about uh, anything. But that didn't, uh, but when we thought about it, 2009, writing a book just on stouts didn't seem right with all the excitement happening. And I kind of proposed to write about uh, really the people 
and how they were really changing the scenes from the inside out, you know, focusing less on sort of a first wave stuff or like Ken Gerson and Jim Cook, like very, they're very instrumental, but I really want to focus in on the things that happened, you know, post uh, 2000 and how that really impacted how the, the minor leagues of homebrewers really rose up during that time as well and really kind of helped change the landscape. So that led to a complete beer course because when you go around tour talking about your beer book and then you realize that most people don't even know what the beers are. So we decided to take a step back and really talk about styles almost from like a, a personal viewpoint, like how, how Munich Hellas grew up from other things too and how all these things are interrelated on this sort of grand spectrum of beer. And then uh, the next book didn't work out. I wanted to write a book about the, really the farmhouse moment of beer. And my publisher said, that's too niche So I was like, well, forget that. Let's write a book about IPAs. So like, do that. I'm like, well, dang. I guess I signed myself for another book. So we want to talk about how we got to that IPA moment, which sort of leads to like right now, which is uh, the book I really want to do for a number of years was, was Homebrew World. It's something I think it's, um, as a writer, you write a lot of stuff. Some stuff is close to your heart. Some stuff is close to a paycheck. And I think, um, you know, you try and never get these two things confused. But I think this book for me is really something that, you know, it's really something that sort of evolution of things I've done in New York City. We've done these things for years called homebrew tours where you take brewers, you take um, random strangers. You basically send down the email, say 30 tickets are in sale. You're showing up at this point at this time. You don't get the address till you uh, buy the ticket. And then you meet up and you're at a homebrewer's home. And you go one stop, two stops, three stops. And you get to go meet um, all these fellow beer lovers. You get to meet all these brewers. And over time, all these brewers really... Um, you know, it's a classic narrative. I mean, somebody says your beer is really good. Maybe you hate your job. But, you know, we really watched all these brewers in New York City be single cut, transmitter, finback, on and on and on. All these people were on the homebrew tours back in the day when they were still just um, cranking out hopes and dreams five gallons at a time. And then they ended up um, becoming professional brewers in the city. So from there, I really wanted to think about how, you know, if it's happening here locally, it's happening, uh, it's happening everywhere. And so... I want to kind of think about how it's happening in Patagonia, how people are changing the worlds in Poland. And that, I think these same sort of ways that we kind of change the game inside out via the homebrewing world is happening, it's happening everywhere else. And I just don't think a lot of these people, you know, you don't get as much credit, I think, especially be it language barriers, be it distance, be it whatever. But everyone out there is, you know, doing the same thing that was happening in America five years ago, 10 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, overcoming limitations to kind of make the best beer they possibly can. Well, and I was going to say, I, I mean, I have to laugh at the, the idea of like the, uh, the New York homebrew tour because I, I just remember when I used to go to New York all the time back when, you know, people had travel budgets too and they would send you to places. Uh, yeah, I remember those days. Yeah, those were nice. But I just remember always thinking, man, this is such a great city, but where's the beer? And then in the last decade or so, it really finally kind of transformed. And yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of those. Those homebrewers that I knew, you know, make that transition. You know, like uh, I, I think you have Mary, uh, Mary Azette and uh, Chris Kuzma in the in the book, and they're friends of mine. I'm watching them making that. Yeah, I just had lunch with them two hours ago. <laughs> we ended up on the same. We ended up on the same flight from New York City. So I was like, Hey, you want to get lunch? I got nobody here right now. And so, but yeah, but I've known Chris and Mary for years. And uh, I think I think the thing about New York City's homebrew I took so long to take off is the lack of access to ingredients. Mm-hmm. We didn't have our first homebrew shop in the mo- or modern homebrew shop in New York City until I think like '09 when Benjamin and Danielle opened up Brooklyn Homebrew in their apartment in Sunset Park, mm-hmm. literally out of their apartment. So you'd go there and you'd walk in and be like, make a homebrew shop in their living room, <laughs> and that was our first homebrew store in a city of eight or nine million. 
they started showing up, which made the access to ingredients much easier. Um, and then I think with the brewery crush right now, too, what happened is in the late 2013, early 2014, the taproom laws changed in New York City, and they allowed you to sell pints directly to consumers. And as we all know, that's where the margins are at. You're not going to make margins. You can't get enough space to be a production facility in New York City to spread your beer far and wide. And it kind of coincided with this sort of drastic shift in the way we consume beer in American society. We don't trudge to the grocery store as much as we used to. We trudge to our local tap room. And so it's expensive to get your, get your doors open in New York, but you've got all these people. You know, my neighborhood alone has 130,000 people in it, my neighborhood. And that's just one neighborhood in Brooklyn. And we don't have a brewery yet. That's like... and. <laughs> You, Portland, Maine has what, you know, 20 plus breweries for a city of 70,000. So we're so underserved for this neighborhood market right now. And I think they have so much potential. But yeah, once they start allowing taps or sorry, pints to be sold directly from tap rooms, I mean, that was a game changer. You could, you know, you sell them your $78 pint, you sell them your $16, $20 four pack of beer directly out of there. You know, people come to New York City to go on tours and go drink and be gluttonous. Now they finally had a chance to come to New York City and, uh, you know, make beer part of their itinerary, which didn't exist before. Well, and I think it's interesting because to kind of touch back on something you were were talking about before about writing about beer is I think there's something unique about the beer scene, at least the way that we've handled it now, that makes it different than, you know, I I would think a lot of people who would end up in New York to write about food and and beverage would end up like, oh, hey, look, it's wine, right? But we with wine, we always talk about, you know, the production houses, we talk about the, the wine itself. Beer seems to be unique in the sense that it there is such a connection to the producers, to the personalities, you know, to the people who are yeah. actually doing it. And I think the tap rooms reinforce that. They do too, and I think I mean this goes back to I mean our changing lives in, in American society right now too, in the sense that you know we buy our toilet paper not at the corner store, we buy it on Amazon. You know, there's a sense of loss and this sort of like human connection in most of the things we do these days. You know, we don't go to restaurants to get our food on Seamless or Grubhub. You know, it's your delivery man who could be an interchangeable automaton. I mean, there's no personality there, no, no relationship connected. But I think the tap room, you could have, a, you could have an interpersonal connection that I think it, it really scratches this deep yearning, I think, to, you know, have a connection to humans and connections to people. And that's what's really important, I feel, that... um and that's a tap room. Not only, not only you know the producers, but your fellow um, fellow drinkers. When you when you open up your doors at noon and you have sunlight bathing you and dogs are walking around and kids are there, it's so much different than going to you know a beer bar at eight o'clock at night, music blaring, uh, shots being poured, something else like that. People are much more, I think, open at that time of day, like earlier in the day, to really have um, interactions with each other. And on Saturdays and so on, I mean, it's just you combine the neighborhood aspect. I mean, it's a no-brainer why these, this sort of concept has really truly taken off. Yeah, it's it's a far more sociable and I think uh, I don't want to say friendly, but uh, but you know, it's it's a much it's a much nicer atmosphere I think than you yeah. know, the old bar. Yeah, uh, so then I get I get to the economy. Some people are just like, no, don't no kids there, no dogs. I mean. Whatever. I mean, I take my kids to the tap rooms at like noon or two o'clock. I mean, <laughs> if you're complaining about other people living lives at two o'clock, I mean, in the afternoon, I mean, we're all drinking beer at two o'clock. We're already having our social stigmas or whatever. So, yeah. well, and, and I'm I have three chihuahuas snoring around me right now, so I have no problems with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, everyone's got everyone's got their level of irritation, but yeah. Well, but I think uh, I think hopefully beer serves as that nice social lubricant to you know gloss over the irritation. So. It does. It does too. I think like a lot of things have been solved by buying around a beer. 
it never hurts. Now, I, let's get into the into the book itself. And of course, I have to uh, yep. start with my little bit of an ego trip. Thank you for the uh, shout out on page thirteen to uh, the Maltose Falcons and to me. You know, you try to you try to give a shout out to the people that have really come before that too, and have done really amazing things. And you know, you want I want to really keep some of the sidebar stuff. You know, putting a spotlight on people. I mean, and. You don't want to say that, oh, man, we're right on trend, but you look at, we want to include say, uh, Sierra Nevada and Ken Gross, and people forget, and you look at all of their uh, marketing materials for 2018, it's all about going back to Ken's homebrewing roots and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So I think, I think it was like weirdly we kind of hit this moment right on the head of this, like this, this quest for authenticity. You see even the larger brewers going back and being like, yeah, you know, we did start in small places too, and just reminding people that we had a garage one time as well. Yeah, and Ken was just actually at my local homebrew shop uh, filming for their whole series uh, for that reason. Look at that. I mean, look at that. I mean, it's just, um, it, it is. And I think it, I think you just need to remind people sometimes, because when you become a brand in this day and age, it is. I mean, you kind of um, exist in a different sphere, and people forget that there's a, an emotion and a heartbeat behind you. Mm-hmm. So it's good to kind of remind people that I had the same sort of, like me as a brewer, I had the same sort of struggles at one point or the other. Yeah, it, well, and I think it's again, it ties back to that thing. You know, uh, something about yeah. craft beer really plays into that sort of sense of we want that personal connection. Like, I want to know, you know, that the where the money that I'm spending on that pint is going to go support, you know, that brewer that I know and like, you know. And yeah, it, yeah so it is weird that people are the brand is personal, right? That's the whole modern social media thing. Yeah, the brand is personal too, and it's weird. I mean, I do. I don't know. It's like I'm a writer, but I got to be a social media person too. And I'm just like this eternal juggle of how do you juggle? How much of your life do you show? How much do you want people to feel connected to you? And how much do you, are you giving away too much? So, you know, it's a perpetual because you want to show people that you've got a life, but also at the same time, it's, you know, I mean, you want to keep some stuff for yourself. Otherwise, you're just broadcasting yourself like Truman Show 24 hours a day. Yeah. Well, uh, people who follow me on Facebook get dog pictures and beer pictures and brewing pictures. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think <laughs> they follow I, me. I think if you sign up for my social yeah, media feed, you you know what you're getting. You're gonna get you're gonna get dumplings for me. You're gonna get great beer. You're gonna get my kid post in front of street art, and you're gonna get a shot of me biking to the beach. <laughs> it's an authentic you slice like any of those things. Yeah, yeah. So in the book, you, the book itself, what you have, I think, 32 brewers uh, separated into four different groups, right? Yeah, so, we're trying to yeah, yeah, we're trying to find I think a nice when you, when you create you know as well as I do when you create books you can't you're not creating a yearbook yep. where everybody's included. And so you've got to find a sort of organizational structure. And if we decide to go by countries, people will be like, but why is, why is Portugal not included? Why is this not? And you're just trying to find, I think you can't include everybody. I mean, and give anybody, I mean, this would be Oxford companion to homebrewing. If we tried to give every country and give everybody their due, their due place and profile. So you've got to take some sort of ideas and chop it down. So I really, I really kind of, um, basically canvassed everybody I knew, everybody knew, like, you know, talk to Stan Hieronymus, who do you know in South America that would be good to talk to? He put me in touch with, like, Martin Boan, he put me in touch with people, and then I talked to people in Japan, or in China, I contacted the people I knew that worked for, you know, food and drink magazines in Beijing, and then we had to go through encrypted, like, WeChat app conversation to get around censors to find people to talk to, and it was just this entire... Thing. But I think what I really wanted to showcase was really the uh, that the, the links that people go to around the world everywhere just to go for the fact of um of getting a beer. You know, the people in um oh gosh, what was it in China 
one of the guys, uh, Caleb Selby, basically goes around and gets people to mule them back hops from around the world, too. The folks in Iceland set up their own malt importation company. They went to Belgium and basically got some malting company to, like, set them up as importers just so they could get grains there. And it's just, you know, the things we take for granted these days is you go online and you can press click or walk down the streets to your local shop and get whatever you want. But, you know, that doesn't exist around the world. And I think, too, one of the, one of the larger threads that struck me, too, is if you can speak English or understand English, you've got a leg up on everybody else around the world. Because so much of the brewing material is written in the, the books are written in English that if you understand English, you're just ahead of the game already. And, that, and that's been a huge, that's a, the huge sort of eye-opener about how important language is to sort of the spread of knowledge. And that, you know, if you're a brewer from elsewhere, how do you go about doing it if you don't have a book you can read? And you can't do that. And, you know, words like Krausen don't translate so well to foreign languages. So there's a certain certain linguistic hurdle that so many of these brewers, not just ingredient hurdle, linguistic hurdle uh, together too, just to figure out what they're doing. If they're doing it right, they're doing it wrong. Well, I was going to say in the travels that I've done, you know, to other countries, what I'm, I'm noticing with a lot of homebrewers is a couple of those same things. Right, the ingredients are the biggest problem that they have. You know, particularly yeast. Yeast seems to be the one that's... Dry yeast, yeah. Well, yeah, and and forget about getting any liquid cultures. I know uh, there are Brazilians, for instance, who fly up to the States and they go buy out a homebrew store supply of liquid yeast and pull it back to Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's absolutely amazing that they are... They are absorbing so much information that we're putting out there because, of course, you look around and you see the amount of information that's going out there. I mean, this podcast, uh, the books I've written, I've, I discovered when, at one point had been translated into Portuguese because they wanted to be able to be able to use them. And yeah, I mean, it's wild, right? I mean, it's like it's like I mean, people want that knowledge, but you've got to find a way to give it to them. And unfortunately, your publisher maybe is not like, well, you know, Portuguese may not be the best use of our resources. <laughs> well, right, and, but you know, there's. But there are diehard people in Portugal that want this information. Yeah, They're taking it upon themselves to do it. And, and it's amazing. I know the AHA uh, has been working on a program to do Spanish translations. You know, so a lot of uh, a lot of new information is appearing in Spanish from the articles that, that people have written for Zymergy. Some of the book stuff is being translated into Spanish. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see because I think one of the things is I'm in agreement with you. All the places that I've gone to, it feels like the homebrewing scene is somewhere about say, 10 to 20 to possibly even 30 years behind where we are right now. But yeah, for they sure. Are, but they are catching up at a rapid rate just because they have access to all that information we've put together over time. Well, that information didn't exist 30 years ago. You know, you didn't have such a wealth of information out there. The ingredients weren't as high class and just um, as available as they are now, too. And I just think we're in such a, we're such a golden age of information that I think that's really, that's really helped homebrewing spread, too. And the fact that you don't have to go to your local club anymore. I mean, I think local clubs still have a great, great role in the homebrewing world, but you don't have to go there to get explicit feedback or if you have a question about a recipe, you can kind of go online, poke mm-hmm. around. There's so many communities that have connected people together, I think. And just, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to watch how all these things are really that. And I think it is, it's not so much information. I mean, sorry, <laughs> repeat myself. It's not so much the ingredients, but it really is the, um, information just that is really the gold that's the gold key to unlock everybody right now yeah and uh, well hey who knows the internet was going to actually be useful for this uh, so you know uh, I, I really had a lot of fun doing the book so all these stories resonated so deeply and you really wanted to showcase the global breadth and scope and really how people use you know in poland they're using indigenous smoked plums and herrings and stuff which would be like the extreme brewing version in poland and so on too and you know chrysanthemum tea flower kolsch in uh 
in Thailand where it's illegal to homebrew. Mm-hmm. I had a heck of a time finding any brewers in Japan because Japan, you can't brew above 1%, and people were afraid of talking to me. they get knocked on the door from the government. <laughs> and so it was crazy. And so you're just sitting there, and even finding people in China going through all the censorship stuff is just, it was as much, this book was as much a logistical hurdle as it was, I mean, the hard part was finding everybody and talking to them. And- well, I was going to say, so besides, uh, you know, reaching out to like Stan Hieronymus and when I, how else did you choose people? Cause I know it's like, obviously some of them are friends from New York and, and, and other, uh, realms. Yeah. A few of them too. I think some of the people too, I want to kind of like focus on some unique stories in there too. Like the people with, uh, you know, I went to Burning Man years ago and, and I always remember there was a homebrew camp at Burning Man and how, amazing that was. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to really talk about how you brew in one of the most inhospitable places on earth where water is completely scarce? Like, how do you go about accomplishing that? And, you know, other people too, Brian Hall, I went to his house on, um, uh, some gentlemen from the main brew bus. They, uh, were inspired by my homebrew tours and led one in Portland, Maine. And this guy was basically running like almost like a lambic, <laughs> a lambic blundery in his basement in Portland, Maine. And you walked down there, and it could have, if you, if you blinked and I told you it was a, in Belgium, you would have been like, okay, I can see this. And to me, it was just so fascinating as well. Um, you know, Chris Mayer, I think, I, you know, having with New York City, I think they've just been such great emissaries of homebrew mm-hmm. for so long and really embody that too. And in fact, you know, it's almost like this like homebrew Voltron got together. <laughs> and, you know, now together just making amazing things happen. And you wouldn't find like two more genuine people as well. And I think, um, you also want to find other stories too, like Mark Zapisodi. You know, he treats not just the he treated not just the beer as art, you know, but the actual brewing contraption itself as artwork as well. And for him, it was not just creating a great sculpture. Um, it, it basically, is, I mean, it's hard to envision. It's almost like a steampunk contraption. Like if someone in Victorian England said to themselves, "You know what? It's 1890s. I'd really like to make a great batch of IPA. What can I do?" They would make this machine. <laughs> Like H.G. Wells would get drunk on this machine. So, and you know, for him, and that thing really just like spurs conversation. And then people can talk about the beer itself and how everything is demystified. And it's just, um, and around the world too, you want to find people, you know, I want to find some people, you know, you want to mix award winners like Chris Bordaggi's from uh, Canada, you know, 50 Point Mile, like Canada's Brewer of the Year, and mix it with other people too. Like I said, Caleb Selby, who's like selling beer illegally in China to feed a thirsty expat community via social media apps and so on. Or, gosh, where's some of the other great stories? Or, you know, or, oh gosh, the gentleman from uh, Poland, Tomas, and like he basically taught so many people how to brew via YouTube because he was able to talk about brewing on YouTube in Polish. And so he basically shepherded an entire, you know, generation of brewers who just clicked on YouTube and learned how to brew. So, you know, I think I really want to focus on people I think were very impactful in their senses too, and also other people that just, you know, what are your challenges to make all these things happen? You know, and people that had great stories of perseverance, you know, going above all odds. I really just wanted to show that, you know, you're talking about how people brew in New York City, you know, small spaces, lack of ingredients doesn't stop anybody. And these are people that, you know, it's their hobby and they want to make this happen, you know, make it happen at all costs. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that we always say on the podcast is, you know, the truth is that malted barley wants to become beer. We're just there to help. Yeah. And I, and I think some of the, the interesting is some of the personalities uh, come out. I think it was uh, Tomas. Uh, there's a little blurb in there. E- each of the brewers gives a little advice. And one of the blurbs was about uh, not using beechwood malt uh, to do your Grotsky. You know, I was like, that's the wrong thing to use. It, it makes it taste like, a, I think it was bacon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was like, yeah. We really try to get these people like, you know, their advice too. And, you know, I think, um, 
you know, with the book, I think with this approach, you know, you, other people have written so many great how to brew books and, you know, I'm really not much of a brewer. I'm a, I like to think of myself as a pretty good writer. And so, so I was able to tease all these stories and tease all these things out of them. Cause a lot of these people are not used to being, not used to being interviewed. I think in this day and age, there's a lot of very media. When I first started writing about beer in the early 2000s, media savviness and brewers, <laughs> I mean, they, that did not really exist. Nowadays, things are so media savvy and filtered throughout and people controlling their own media channels. So with this, it was really great to go back and, you know, get people and get really authentic, passion-driven stories, not run through a PR team that says, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. So I was able to really get these great stories from them. And I worked with the uh, folks over at uh, Bitter Nesters, which is, you know, New York City's only homebrew shop. Uh, but Doug and John are great at recipe formulation to make sure that everything we wrote in the book was, um, you know, above board. So I hired them to basically be QA people to make sure everything read good, tasted good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just really important for me to try to get as many things, get the facts right in the story, get the recipes right together. When, when Denny and I did, uh, homebrew all-stars a couple of years ago, you know, which is you know, kind of a, a similar concept. Yeah. I think one of our biggest problems was, uh, it, it, not, uh, not so much media savviness, but uh, making sure that people actually responded to the interview requests. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was a challenge. Oh my God. Not to be all journalism, but your book came out and I was already working on that. I'm like, I'm like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> You're just like, everybody's got ideas. <laughs> so it was like, then we're like, okay, then we're like, we need to, we already had the global aspect on there too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, definitely, um, you were asking me to pick some people. I did not just want to, re- you know, Andy Johnson's a great brewer, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Brew Lost, we all of them are great people. They were in your book. We didn't want to just repeat that. And so I really felt like we wanted to, you know, find go out there and really beat down doors and find other great brewers too. They all have very worthy stories too. But uh, I don't know. I mean, how many stories can you read about the same people over and over and over again? So yeah, absolutely. I really and I think, to- I mean, I think that's one of the biggest, biggest things out of this is, I mean, I think when we were putting together Homebrew All-Stars originally, you know, Oh my, I mean, like the number of people that we were originally thinking about, oh, we could talk to this person, we could talk to this person. Yeah, there's a thousand and one stories out there. And each yeah. of them has a each of them has a unique flavor, even if there are a lot of components that feel somewhat the same. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I mean, like, we definitely have metal winners in there. But, you know, for me, it was really about the story. You're not going to, the folks, this collective of people that in Iceland, have, you know, sort of their malt importation company, you know, you're not going to buy their beer at the stores tomorrow. That's anything you may never, their group of friends that their friendship was falling apart and beer got them back together. And so that's what really worked out in a huge way. But, you know, they've overcome all these odds together and they basically, they turn an old washing machine into bring equipment and people fly back to New York city. It's from their friends to bring back stuff. It's just like, it, it becomes this, I think in a lot of ways, it harks back. You know how when you're like maybe 19 or whatever, you get your first taste of beer mm-hmm. and it felt illicit. It felt like something you're, you, you got the keys to a, a kingdom you shouldn't be that ava- shouldn't be available you know same thing for i think a lot of these brewers too it's you're you're beating the man you're beating the odds you're beating the law you're doing this and you're just like and it's for just a simple pursuit of making a better beer and it's super it was really interesting to me about that stuff too that it did feel very diy very sort of um homespun like we're gonna do this i don't care what you think we're gonna make this happen you know would cheat uh, in uh, Thailand. It's illegal to brew in Thailand. She's got a homebrew academy on like an island near off a river island uh, near Bangkok where he teaches people. And he's been busted by the cops a bunch. So he's just like, you know what, whatever. I'm going to create. And he's working really hard to upend in the same way that we think about, I think, with like, you know, America with like Bud, Miller, Coors, you know, getting rid of like Chang and other people too. That's those same sort of like uh, oppressive um, 
conglomerate forces are at play in so many countries around the world. And that can go in two ways. In Poland, what you see is about 90% of the breweries, the number of, I was told this number when I was doing the book, you know, started up doing the contract brewing model. Mm-hmm. where had no shame whatsoever. And with all that excess capacity, now they're able to kind of go out and do whatever. Or, you know, or the, and it's just, it's just so many of these people have the ability to just take things in different directions, like a crystal from a Berlin for parasite productions. They'll take like Rodenbach, Grand Cru, and Doctor already finished beer and create something totally unique and exciting. And so you're taking what so many people can be considered like a, uh, you know, a masterpiece. And then you'd be like taking the Mona Lisa and spray painting something on it. But, you know, it's different. Is it beautiful? I don't know. It's really all about you to decide. So it's just about how we think all these ideas have been taken, but there's not. There's so many other ideas out there right now. Well, and I think it's also a telling point to take a look and see. You know, I mean, here in America, we sort of have that very specific view on what craft beer means, like poo-pooing contract brewers. You know, we have no notion of anybody as a finisher. Although uh, that's actually yeah. right now with the, uh, the the sour breweries that are starting up with no breweries in them. They just do the finishing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- we have sort of a very narrow definition sometimes, I think, or a very narrow viewpoint on what makes good beer or good beer experience. So I do think it's actually useful to kind of step outside that and figure out, uh, hey, you know, that's not all, that's not the only story. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, and also, too, you don't have to, to be great at brewing. I mean, there's this guy, Matthias, <laughs> another German... And his goal is to make this, in classic German fashion, like BASF, we don't make things to make things better. He wants to make this the most perfect sort of industrial homebrew equipment setup. Doesn't really write recipes himself, relies on the friend for that. But he's a genius of doing technological stuff and making things out and making a beautiful gleaming chrome equipment that just cranks out terrific beer. And so there's all these different roles I think we can have in, in the world all together, too. You know, just because you're a brewer doesn't mean, you know, you have to have, you know, 15-barrel system, a tap room with Edison light bulbs and brick walls and so on. I mean, there's so many other ways you can go about making your mark in the beer world. And I think that's really what I wanted to show, you know, and it's just, um, and how you can use your native indigenous ingredients to really as well change your world around and how, you know, we're fruit crazy right now in America. What about black tea in China? What about all the native fruits of South America? There's so much left to explore out there right now. And I think once all these countries start really going gangbusters and getting the programs up, you know, I mean, the sky's the limit what can happen. I mean, Costa Rica, I wrote about Luis in the book. I mean, he was the one that helped, like, put the first homebrew shop on the island. Now his former homebrew shop uh, customers are running the country's first breweries. And so it's, it's great. It's just once someone puts that seed, something grows, other people take it and run with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and one thing I've noticed is, I don't even think you have to step outside the country to see some of those different sort of takes and stories. You know, we had an interview a couple episodes back with uh, LA's first uh, sort of Latino homebrew club, uh, the so-called mm-hmm. Cerros. And what was interesting is I've done a couple of events with them now. And even here in LA, stepping into that club with a very Latino focus, you know, you notice like all the flavor profiles are different. You know, there are fruits yeah. that are coming into play. There are completely different, different balances. So, yeah, I think yeah. There's, a, there's a lot to be left unexplored, unturned, and no, that doesn't mean more fried chicken beer. And no more fried chicken beer. I mean, or we need more marijuana beer, more fried chicken beer. It's just these ideas happen so rapidly here. And then you almost have to do that because we're to keep people's attention. You know, out there, too, I mean, it's just uh, everything. There's so much out there open for reinvention in the world. I think I wrote about it in a book, but... um. One of the first craft breweries in Costa Rica was known, I think, like an Irish red ale. So you've got all these people out there 
you know, they almost have, like, in the same sense that we have to have an IPA on tap in American breweries to be considered, like, where's your IPA? Mm-hmm. There, it's like, give me your Irish red ale. <laughs> and it's just, it's just interesting how sort of people like Johnny Appleseed did these ideas. And what the heck is an Irish red ale doing in Costa Rica as, like, the de facto order at a beer bar? And then you realize when the first breweries, you know, had, that's what they made. And that's what the, they set the local taste preference profile for that. So that's sort of like, you know, you know, caramel rich, uh, moderate ABV beer. I, I almost kind of want to live in that world just as a change. <laughs> you know, oh my God, I'm at this bar right now and I just wanted to buy. It's like, you don't have any lagers? Like, we have one lager on it. It's like a cold brew coffee lager. I'm like, I just, I just want something wet. <laughs> something wet <laughs> and like cold and unassuming. <laughs> it's like 75 degrees outside in uh, Nashville and bright skies and all they had on tap are pretty much are double IPAs and like whatever fruited sour juice bombs, which are totally great. But um, but not always appropriate. Wet your whistle. Not when you want to wet your whistle. So hey, drinking a marijuana beer, high on life, not on. So hey, before before we leave, uh, is there anything else that you want uh, listeners to know about the book? Um, no, you know, I just think you know, if you're ever curious about how people make things happen, if you ever said to yourself, "I shouldn't do it," why are people doing this there? I mean, this book is really just going to open up your eyes to really just the breadth and scope of what's happening around the world. These are people for whom the light never really gets, the light never shines on them. I would say, and here we're shining a light on all these scenes that are happening in tandem and parallel to what's happening in America. We just don't really know about it. And then um, lastly, you know, I bought banana mailers, if anybody wants, which are <laughs> giant padded envelopes of bananas on them. So we're selling beer books. If you want to copy the book signed, uh, you go to my website, joshuambernstein.com, and you'll get a koozie and a banana mailer, because why not? Why not indeed? So we'll make sure to include links uh, to uh, to Josh's website uh, in the show notes and uh, other links to the other books that, that you had because right now what you have, Brood Awakening, The Complete Beer Course, and Complete IPA as well. Yeah, as well. And you're probably going to be updating Complete Beer Course around like 2020 once, uh, you know, the market's kind of undergoing seismic shifts right now. Yep. So we're just waiting to see where things kind of settle up before we put anything else down to ink the paper, you know. It's um, still a valuable document, but, you know, we want to just make sure that nobody's like, maybe we should refresh our entire brand portfolio, like something like Otter Creek did, which they went from being a proud, you know, to like becoming like a dank IPA farm. I miss Otter Creek Amber. I know, I know, but you can get Otter Creek Hazy nine ways. Yeah, or actually, sorry, it was Otter Creek Copper. Oh, uh, Copper, yeah, Copper is their famous one. Yeah, yeah, it was Long Trail Amber, Otter Creek Copper, and Harpoon IPA were the first three beers that got me into craft beer. I mean, revolutionary beers at the time and still revolutionary. It's just sort of, um, you know, getting people, you know, we should have like a day where we just get people to try beers that are very instrumental, then go back to them again. Just get people to remember what these beers taste like. We'll have a retro beer day. Yeah. Just wait long enough. Doc Martens are back now. I mean, anything can happen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, uh, Joshua, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us uh, there from uh, Nashville. We hope that you enjoy your beer, and we hope that you can find something that is a a lager and not necessarily a dank IPA. (laughs) One day soon. One day soon we'll find. My journey will be complete. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again. Uh, Have a great rest of your day. Well, man, what can I say? It sounds like our book, but a different take on our book. Yeah. Well, and I think it's very clear. I mean, there the real focus of, of both of these books is, you know, kind of getting that story out there about, you know, brewers, because all of us do this thing just, you know, slightly differently. I mean, yeah, you can summarize the rough process that we all do and it all looks the same, but there's just that little bit of 
that personal magic, that little personal touch that happens with everything, and you know, and and different opinions. Like you know, you can't use beechwood malt in a Grotsky. That it makes your beer taste like barbecue. You have to go use oak. So <laughs> you know, just uh, some really fun things to see. And of course, uh, it was re- really great to talk to Josh and get some uh, some of his history about home brewing and his history of about coming up with this idea and, and other places to go. Cool, man. All right. I guess it's time to uh, wrap this baby up, huh? Yeah, we got some questions to do, some quick tipping, and something other. Let's do it. All this. right. Okay, stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Okay, it's time for the final segment here of Experimental Brewing. We're going to start off with some questions that we've gotten. Yeah, and the first one comes from Ron Zimmerman via Facebook, and he says, If I co-fermented a beer with two strains of yeast, and for example, one typically had an attenuation of 70% and the other 76%, would you think the final attenuation would be an average of the two, somewhere around 73-ish, or the higher of the two, 76%? Yes, the prudent thing would be to, to do separate ferments and blending, but curious as to what would likely happen if actually pitched together at the same time. Denny. Well, Ron, you forgot uh, a third option, which is you might get the 70% of the one that attenuates like that. And that's because when you pitch two yeasts simultaneously, it's really nearly impossible to predict or control which one will dominate. If you want to do that, you kind of just have to... Uh, Count on serendipity to give you your result, and it's going to be what it's going to be. Boy, that's all very zen, isn't it? Um, yeah, if you want to control it, then you need to uh, actually ferment separately, like you say, and blend. But other than that, you just really don't know. It, it's a crapshoot. People say, oh, you can control it via temperature, stuff like that. I have never found that to be true. When you pitch two yeasts simultaneously, they're going to do what they want to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
Yeah, and actually, I think one of the biggest problems with co-pitching, as much as I love co-pitching, because I do it all the time with Saisons, for instance, is that little bit of unpredictability, at least in the initial generations. And I think what tends to happen and what uh, breweries see happen is that over time, they kind of settle into a ratio. So, you know, you see what happens over, and see, you know, what you get if you keep doing those uh, together again and again and again. And I bet you'll settle into a pattern. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have never done it repeatedly enough to find out myself, but, uh, I, you know, and I'm, I'm too much of a control freak to just, uh, take my chances. I want to know what I'm getting out of there. Um, of course, that doesn't account for any screw ups I make. See, I just, I like the mystery of it. Yeah, I know you do, man. Uh, mystery is in my past. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so the next, uh, the next question comes in from Brian Mills via email. He says, Drew, my club is participating in a work transformation competition. Basically, everyone participating is getting five gallons of wort from a local brewery and in a couple months coming back with beer. The recipe is pretty simple. 80% pale malt, 10% wheat, 10% red X, 15 IBUs of Cascade for bittering, 5 IBUs of Cascade for flavor, uh, 1057 OG, balanced water profile, mashed at 152. I would imagine there will be plenty of saisons and dry hop pale ales, so I thought I'd try to go a little different with a beer to guard. I'm stuck on a yeast to use. Since this style is a cousin to the saison, I thought maybe you'd have some ideas, and when you're done, I do too. Uh, I was hoping that WLP 072 French Ale would be available, but it doesn't look like it will be released. Same thing goes for Y's 3725 PC. What would be your suggestion? Mm, suggestions, lots of suggestions. And really the, the thing about this is it's kind of a complex question because beer to guard is sort of a, a weird complex thing. Uh, you have to kind of remember that really there's sort of almost two threads to beer to guard and what you choose is going to be based on which one you're trying to emulate. So the modern beer to guards, they're they're very clean. They're uh, they're lager like because of the fact that well, I mean, they actually do use lager uh, yeast in the fermentations and in the bottling, and you know they they tend to go into kind of the the higher range, so like mid fifties, sixties, uh, get a little bit different character. There's a good reason for that, and the fact that I mean, really, the thing that we have to remember is that beer to guard really just means beer to store, you know, or beer you know beer to keep, and you know that's really effectively the French equivalent of the German word lager. Um, if you wanted to go for something that was a little bit more older and rustic, uh, so a little bit more of that turn of the century type thing, I would actually go with, you know, just like one of the classic Saison use, so like something like a 3726 and just keep it cooler than, uh, than you would when you're trying to go for a ferment uh, for a Saison where you're trying to really push those esters. To me, I think the keys with the beer to guard is that you want sort of a, a, a clean maltiness, a little bit of chewiness to it. And then, you know, just a little bit of yeast character to kind of give you something to hang everything else off of. So that's, that's my, uh, my, my thought. And I think the other thing, of course, is a, a beer to guard with cascade is kind of an, an, an interesting twist, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. Keep in mind that beer to guard is not one of your traditional historical beer styles. It's uh, a marketing invention from the, the 1930s, 1950s, and they are generally clean beers. The reason that uh, a lot of people think that they're funky is just because of the examples that we get here. But, uh, you know, a, a beer to guard can be pretty much whatever you say it is. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you got any other suggestions there, or are you just are you just poo pooing on the whole style? No, 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 no. I I like the style, man. I've I've brewed them in the past, but I do generally go with a clean yeast for them, uh, as opposed to the what people think of as the the funky yeasts. Uh, you know, if, if you go out and you get like a, a bottle of Gen Lane, that is going to be a fairly clean beer. Uh, I know there are other examples of the style, but that's one that, that is usually readily available to most people. So, uh, yeah, brew it. Make it your take on it. You're already doing that with the Cascades. Uh, and so for yeast choice, I guess what I'm getting at is you can pick just about anything you like and you can call it a beer to guard. Yeah. And I know some people out there have used like coal strains and whatnot, but yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking if you want, you want a little bit of something, I, I, I would go with one of the Saison strains, just mute it. Yeah. Exactly. Keep the temps low to keep it down. So. All right, and last question for today comes from Dan Gruber v. Email, who says, uh, You have mentioned diastaticus in the past. I have a satchet of uh, Safel BE-134. I've downloaded the spec sheet, and it says var diastaticus. What precautions should I take with this yeast? Dan. Denny. Well, I would uh, I would wear safety goggles, a hard hat, and probably a, a complete hazmat suit. Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, there's a couple things you can do. If you want to, you can dedicate a, an entire set of equipment uh, to uh, using that yeast uh, in case you're going to do it again. What you're going to want to do at the very least is sanitize after you use the equipment using an iodine-based uh, sanitizer like iodophore or uh, something like that because iodophore will kill the wild yeast and uh, make that equipment uh, probably pretty safe to use again. So thorough cleaning um, and sanitizing with, with iodine is going to be the way to go. Right. Well, one, one quick point. I mean, uh, Vardiostatic is, isn't a wild yeast, right? I mean, it's it's still yes. Saccharomyces. It's just right. a variant. Yes. Um, and one thing I, uh, I, I do want to say, I know we've talked about it recently because this is kind of a hot topic with, you know, different lawsuits running around and suddenly everybody going, wait, yeast does what? The thing I think to keep in mind about Vardiostaticus is that for home brewers, this is going to be less of a problem than it is for a commercial brewery, mostly because we're getting rid of our beer in a, in a sort of dedicated, well-known time frame. And you just really want to be commonsensical about it. Iodophore is a great option just because you do know it's going to kill it off uh, dead. And if you're really persnickety, you want to make sure that you do things like change out seals and kegs and whatnot. But I tend to do that every year anyway. Uh, so just keep that in mind. I, I don't think homebrewers have to go, you know, full, you know, nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure, uh, approach, but you know, do, do what you will to make sure that you're safe. I did think it was funny that Safale updated the BE 134, uh, PDF and spec sheet to mention VAR diastaticus back in December. So I thought that was fine. <laughs> really? Okay, so hey, that's our questions for today. And don't forget that we are now officially six episodes away from our next Q&A episode. So oh, start well, that's scary. Yeah, so start thinking about some questions uh, so we can start stockpiling them and get you some good answers. Uh, we've got a couple that we're sitting on because we've got to do research on them. And I want to make sure that we get you the right answers. But remember, episode 72, because it's a 12-episode uh, even split, is going to be our next Q&A episode. So start getting those questions in, boys and girls. And now, Denny. Why don't you give them a quick tip? The quick tip this episode is what you can't see can ruin your beer. I thought of this the other day when I turned on my pump to uh, run some sanitizer through it, and the first thing that came out of my pump 
were globs of mold. And it's like, oh yeah, it has been a while since I've broken down my pump and cleaned it. The same thing goes for things like uh, quick disconnects, Cobra taps, stuff like that. Please, on a regular basis, take apart any of your equipment that you can't see the inside of and give it a thorough cleaning and sanitizing in there. And especially make sure it's dry before you put it back together again. You'll be happy you did it when you don't have problems. So again, things like pumps, quick disconnects, Cobra taps, anything that is a sealed piece of equipment, you need to take apart, get in there, clean it out, and dry it out real thoroughly. And uh, you'll make your beer happy, and then your beer will make you happy. Yeah, and really make sure that the, you follow through on that dry tip. One of the things I always do with one of my pumps is I actually, you know, I'll run sanitizer back through it. And then after I do that, I'll blow the thing out with CO2 just to really make sure I dry it out as much as I can. Yeah, right. And for me, there's nothing like just the total disassembly and let it sit there for a couple of days to make sure that it's dry. Yeah. And then, and by the way, also make sure you check your dip tubes. Uh, you guys know I ferment in kegs, and I was disassembling a keg, getting ready to go uh, do a ferment on that American Mild. And I was I was like, oh, hey, this is already pretty clean. I don't have to worry about it too much. And I pulled the dip tube just on a random happenstance and noticed that the dip tube had a nice coating of beer stone on it. So, oh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and of course, this goes for keg posts, too. You know, when when you're done with a keg, what I always do is I pull the posts off of it. I take apart the quick disconnects, take apart the Cobra tap, um, and clean them all every time the keg goes, because that way you know that it's going to be okay the next time you use it. All right, there you go. Be, be OCD about your stuff, because yeah, your beer will thank you. That's right. All right, and you have something other this week. Yes, I do. And you guys know that I'm an absolute YouTube fiend. If I'm not uh, listening to podcasts, if not reading a book, uh, odds are pretty good I'm going to be on YouTube. And I recently discovered the British Museum has a YouTube channel. And in particular, they have a show on there called Curator's Corner. That's you know, like about you know five to ten minute long segments of you know, British Museum curators talking about artifacts in their segments. And Boy, is it really cool. And actually, one of the guys who really sort of founded the whole Curator's Corner is this really crazy guy, Irving Finkel, who has absolutely crazy hair that looks exactly like everything you'd expect from a British Museum coordinator. And he, his whole subject is Sumerian, which tells you how I got onto this. <laughs> and you know, some of his lessons are about how you, how you read and write cuneiform. It's actually so fascinating. I went out and I actually bought his book on how you write and read cuneiform. I don't know why. I just did because I thought it was kind of cool. If you start doing the scripts like that, I'm out of here. <laughs> Might just do it just for fun. All right. <laughs> There's your quick tip. The YouTube channel, the British Museum's Curator's Corner. We'll make sure to include a link to the show notes. Go enjoy it. You get to learn some really fun stuff. All righty. That about takes care of this week. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums, including a new one I just found, beerborg.com. Go be assimilated. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, 
I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1ALE. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 